Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. You're here in 1 John. Turn over, if you will, in chapter 1. Just for a second, we're not going to study all of 1 John, but I think having not studied it, not preached out of it for some time, it would be beneficial for us to get kind of a theme verse for 1 John. When someone comes to a saving knowledge of Christ, I find it helpful to often instruct them, encourage them, if you will, to read through the sum, I think it's 108 verses or 105 or 103, I forget exact number, but roughly a little over 100 verses that are in 1 John. Uh, the, the theme of 1 John is not necessarily the same theme as the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, the purpose of that is that we might believe and have eternal life. The theme of 1 John really is found clearly in verse number 3 and uh, right in that region of chapter 1. And that's what I want you to look at in 1 John. We're in 1 John now, not the Gospel of John. 1 John chapter 1. John writing, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you. Why? That's, that's the question we're going to insert. Why are you telling me what you've seen and heard, John? That ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. If you want to know a theme of 1 John, it's simply this, how to have fellowship with God. Now, there's a number of things that prevent individuals, and I'm, I'm speaking of saints, from coming and having the fellowship they ought to have. You can come down to verse number 9, and you could talk about in chapter 1, and it, you could theme that. One of the things that will keep you from having the fellowship that you ought to have with your Savior is, in fact, unconfessed sin. Uh, another thing that will have it in chapter 2 would be the love of the world. You get down to chapter 3, and you could talk about uh, the, uh, the failure to love the brethren. In chapter 4, the spirits that exist, where he says, believe not every spirit, but try the spirit. And so he outlines over these distinctions that prevent you from having fellowship with God. The overarching thing of how you can have that fellowship restored, right? He says, if we confess our sin, he's what? faithful and just, forgive us our sin. And when our sins are confessed as a child of God, what happens? Our fellowship is restored. And then you come to the passage that we just read just a moment ago in chapter 5, and he's bringing this in, and, and from verses 13 down to 21, he gives another, uh, I'm going to call it reason, uh, that all of this is written for our admonition, and that is found in verse 13. These things have I written unto you, that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. You may believe on the name of the Son of God. And he's going to give a series of, maybe we could call it, uh, uh, biblical certainties that exist. He's going to give you about five biblical certainties in these last seven or eight chapters. Now, this isn't going to be the focus tonight. We're going to kind of come in in the middle of one of them. Uh, but, you know, as I think about certainties, and we think of 1 John, we live in a very uncertain world. In fact, if you were going to describe the world, the cosmos, the order, and, and really dis distinctive and really demonic features of this world system we live in, uncertainty would be how I would describe it. I would describe this world system as being very relative, meaning um, inconsistent and changing depending on where you're at. That's the culture of this world. I think this world would be described by deception. 
it often offers different uh, than what it actually provides. And I think when you look at the world system, those are three qualities that could be used to describe the cosmos, the, the order of the world. Now, when you think of the world, it's not always the nature. It can be the nature, it can be the ethos uh, or, or the ethnic, if you will, the people that inhabit it, or it can be the system at large. And I'm speaking of the system tonight when I say description of the world. I'm speaking of uh, the principalities and wickedness that are described in Ephesians chapter 6 in high places. And of that, it's demonic. And therefore, it provides that which is uncertain. It provides that which is very relative, uh, inconsistent, if you will. And it provides that which is ultimately deceptive. But when we come to the Word of God, we can note a series of things about the Word of God. We can speak of the Word of God in one sense, that unlike the world that is relative, deceptive, inconsistent, uncertain, the Word of God is objective. The distinction there is to be made between what is objective and what is subjective. So much in our world, and this goes back to that relative, so much of our world is subjective. It depends on who you ask. It depends on what question. I heard a fellow say the other day, we were talking about this age-old political fight, and they said, really, uh, your position depends on when you're going to start summarizing and understanding it. And probably that was true in at least in a certain aspect, but it's very subjective. That means you can really never have truth. You can just have a portion of truth, but the word of God is objective. It means this. It means it's independent. It's outside of the human mind. It is revealed by a truthful God, and therefore it is always truth, even if the subjective appeals of man doesn't see it that way. I think of John chapter 17, the Lord's prayer in the garden as he prayed for his saints. He said, sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. Second Timothy chapter 2, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing what? The word of truth, the word of God's objective. It's the word of truth, whether someone agrees with it or disagrees with it. Therefore, it's objective. When we think about the Word of God, we think that it's rational in a sense. By rational, I mean it's intelligible. It's not mystical. I marvel at sometimes when I turn the radio on and I'll be listening to a radio teacher's going down the road, uh, and I've got to tell you, some of them are just way out there. I, they get into very mystical numerology, and, and I'm not against numerology as a place for it, but how they do it is so fanciful that... Only if you buy their book can you truly understand it. And when I hear that, I almost go, ha, ha, ha. Except it's not funny. Because I'm going to tell you, there's a host of individuals today that have spent their life savings trying to understand the Word of God from a mystical point of view when all they really needed to have is an illuminated point of view by studying it with the illumination of the Spirit of God upon it. And it's a powerful thing. The Word of God has no private interpretation. Number three, when we think about the Word of God, it has veracity. It has veracity. By that we mean when it's interpreted normally and rationally, what does it do? It reveals divine truth. Someone has said that uh, the authorized version of scriptures here that we hold is written on about a third grade education, meaning you don't have to be a scholar to understand the Word of God. I've given the better part of my adult life studying the Word of God. And I'm amazed 
as I have a number of books in my library, and I have some that I frequent more than others, but as I read, I, I'm amazed at the individuals, uh, many of which are almost all of them, but many of them which are dead today and the grasp they had on the Word of God. And I'm amazed at that. And I do hope that as I continue in my study that I'll come to more knowledge, more understanding, uh, and ultimately to be more like the Lord Jesus. But the Word of God, if it is interpreted normally and rationally, it yields truth. It's not hidden. It's present. Number four, when we look at the Word of God and contrast to the world system, the Word of God is authoritative. Now, the world brings authoritative by how much the world accepts something which is kind of crazy because that means the world could come up with a, a weird hypothesis. Like, I don't know, let me give you a weird one here. I'll, I'll fancy my imagination. Let's just say that the world would say this. The world would say that you descended, I don't know, from monkeys. That would be their hypothesis. And they don't need any evidence, any empirical evidence at all. They can just say it. And because all the world agrees with it and says, yeah, I believe that's right, ergo by the world system, that makes it right. But the Word of God isn't like that. The Word of God is authoritative regardless of how man feels about it or what man thinks about it or how man or if man accepts it. It is authoritative for it is the very words of the Almighty God. And then another fifth point I'll give you about the world. I would note the world seeks inclusion. You ever notice that? They seek inclusion. The world's always... What is, we hear this around political election times, broadening their tent. You ever heard that phrase? We got to broaden the tent. That means we got to bring voters that didn't vote for us under our umbrella. Uh, we, that's what we have to do. I would note the Word of God is exclusive. It's exclusive. Anything that contradicts the Word of God is inherently false. That's what I mean by it's exclusive. Biblical Christianity is exclusive in a world that is attempting to be inclusive. Of course, I would note that the world and the world system is inclusive to everyone and everything but a Bible-believing Christian. But the scriptures that we have are exclusive. They're meant only for those who have accepted them as the revealed word of God and those that will understand them by the illumination of the Spirit of God outside of that, they'll not be understood. I think of what the Lord said in, my, in um, excuse me, John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And what's the next words? No man coming to the Father, but by, that's exclusivity. There's only one way to heaven. Romans chapter 5 and verse 2, by him, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, we have access into the heavenlies. This is the same thing spoken of in other passages of scriptures. I think of Timothy. There is one mediator between God and man. There's only one. There's not 18. There's not two. There's not three. And so the truth of scripture is exclusive because it is truth. Now, in 1 John chapter 5, I'll give you an outline. There's really five things of these biblical certainties that are given. Note verse 13, the first of these. The first biblical uh, certainty that is given in this passage is found in verse 13, that you might have eternal life. And I would emphasize, as many would have done before in verse 13, that ye may know that you have eternal life. Our salvation based on our, our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. 
That's how one comes to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 10, If thou shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, thou shalt be almost saved. All you got to do is do works. No. All the work that is involved, and might I say, there is a tremendous amount of work involved in salvation. There had to be a perfect lamb. There had to be a sacrifice. There had to be the process of reconciliation. There had to be atonement. There had to be translation. There had to be imputation. There's a heavy, heavy load of work that need to be done. But from our perspective, it's simply faith and that faith that brings about obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And once that faith has been known and understood and belief has been made and the Savior has been received, guess what? Eternal life is present. And so John gives us the first of these certainties in chapter 5, the certainty of eternal life. You get down through verse 14 and 17, 14 through 17, and he speaks of this. And this is the, what's our word? Confidence. Think of certainty. The second certainty is answered prayer. He says that we have in him, if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. It's a certainty that God hears the prayer of his righteous children. Just as certain as your salvation is, so certain is it that God hears the prayers of his saints. You know, sometimes we might wonder if God heard them. But a child of God that is walking in fellowship with God will be a child of God that is praying according to his will, and God has dogmatically promised that he will hear them. There's a third certainty given in verse number 18. He says, We know, certainty, that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and the wicked one touch him not. Now, we give you this certainty. Number three is a certainty that uh, a believer can have victory over sin. This is what he says. We know that whoever is born of God sinneth not, he continues with the thought, he keepeth himself. Through the power of God, a child of God can live a holy, victorious life. That is not a hope. That is a certainty. Then he's going to give us a fourth one, verse number 19. And we know that we are of God in the whole world. There's another one we know. I'll give you this one, citizenship. I know to whom I belong. I know who my father is. Abraham looked for a city that had foundations. You and I, I believe it's Ephesians, are ambassadors for Christ. We have been brought nigh by the blood of God, or by the blood of the Lamb, and we no longer are, are citizens of this world system, but we've been translated to a new kingdom. Therefore, we're strangers and pilgrims and foreigners here, but we belong distinctly. Our citizenship is in heaven. And then he gives a fifth thing. A fifth certainty is given in verse number 20. And we know that the Son of God is come, that hath given us understanding that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true. Even in his Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. And I would submit to you a fifth certainty is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. He alone is God. And we know that because it's not revealed unto us, just as Peter said. The Lord looked at his disciples. He said, will you leave also? And Peter said, where shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. That's our expression. 
Listen, regardless of what goes on in our society, regardless of what goes on in our life, this should be a certainty in the life of every believer that would walk with God. We know who the Savior is. And we know that besides Him, there is none other. And besides the salvation that He provides, there's no other salvation. And besides the hope that He provides, there's no other hope. And besides the resurrection that He one day will provide, there is no resurrection. He is supreme. And then the admonition in verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. I want you to take a moment and let's look back at that second point or second certainty really in verses 14 through 17. And just to gather our thoughts for a moment, I want to focus on these verses and it'll be something that we'll circle back to. It says in verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have in him. We ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have petitions that we desired of him. Now, you might think that there's an immediate change of gears, but get to the end of the verse. In verse 16, he said, if any man see his brother sin a sin, which is not unto death, he shall ask, shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it all unrighteousness sin, and there is a sin not unto death. I would note in all this praying, knowing the effectual working of a righteous man's prayer, James chapter 5, there seems to be in this particular section where there is confidence that God hears our prayer, John the Beloved is going to admonish the child of God on how he prays, and note the emphasis there. Let me back up to verse number 16 how that righteous man would pray when he sees his brother sin a sin, which is not unto death. It's an amazing thing, this word sin a sin, it's in keeping, it's a present participle, so it means it's concurrently happening and continuing. And I would note, if you take note, let me show you, uh, turn over to chapter 3. He uses this same thought in chapter 3 in regards to a present continual sin. He says in chapter 3, and note, if you will, verse 4, whosoever committeth sin, present participle, is the idea of hitting the ball. It's continual. It's an action that moves forward. He says, committed sin transgresseth all those of law, for sin is a transgression of law. Look in verse 8. He that, committing, uh, he that committeth sin, present participle again, is of the devil, for the devil sinneth, and by the way, Almost all the time when you're reading and you're authorized and a word ends in an E-T-H, F, you know what that denotes? Continuation. So when he speaks of the devil, he's telling you the devil sinneth from the beginning. You know what that means? There's never been a time since the beginning that the devil has ceased to sin. I remember years ago in a Sunday school class and uh, one, of my, one of my companions said, I, I have a prayer request. And the Sunday school teacher said, what's your prayer request? And, you know, we were expecting my dog, my hat, my toy. And he said, I think we need to pray for the devil because he's really bad and he needs to get right. Now, it was a genuine heart of, this, of a child, innocence. But the fact is, here in this particular passage, the devil sinneth. There's, he has condemned himself by his own actions against the holy God. This is what Isaiah and Ezekiel reference to, that he is cast down. His fate is eternally secure. 
There's no riding his ship. There's no desire in his eternal heart to right that ship. He is forever and ever condemned and doomed. And by the way, he is going to go kicking and screaming into the place prepared for him. I would note Revelation chapter 20, the scripture says that that old dragon would be cast into the lake of fire. And do you remember the descriptive word? Bound. While he's in the demonic eternal fire, he'll still be as rebellious as he is now. That's what John is conveying. He that committed sin, present participle, did it and continues in it, unrepentant, the scripture says, is of the devil. Well, why? For the devil sinneth all the time. It's a great analogy. You're not of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only two realms in the world. We could speak about the different ethnic groups. You could talk about the distinctions of humanity, of an Eastern mind and a Western mind, if you want. And you perhaps could talk of, of other cultural mindsets. But the fact is, as God looks upon humanity, those descendants of, Abraham, of Adam, there's really only two realms, a realm of darkness and a realm of light, a realm of condemned and a realm of salvation, a realm of unrighteous and a realm of righteous. Those are the only two. So by salvation, you and I are moved into the very family of God. And I would note in chapter 3, note verse 1, he says, What manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called what? The sons of God. If I had planned to preach on chapter 3, you could distinctly uh, articulate it this way, a title, Who is your daddy? The individual that has received Jesus Christ as their Savior is translated into the family of God. They are concurrent right now, continual forever, the sons of God. This is why I believe in the eternal security of a believer. For once I am born again, not of a corruptible seed, but of an incorruptible seed which liveth and abideth forever, I am forever and always in the family of God. But if I have not received the finished work of Jesus Christ, who am I? My sins imputed unto me, my sins unconfessed, my sins unforgiven, my actions continual, verse number eight, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. He that committeth them is of the devil. Now, when you come to chapter five, here's something interesting. Look, if you will, at verse number 16. If any man see his brother sin a sin, it's the same type verbiage, present participle, beginning and continuing. And he begins to denote this. He says he'll, uh, that's not unto death. Now here's an interesting thought. What is the sin unto death? It's not the same thing as given in Matthew where it's the blasphemy of the, uh, blasphemy of the Holy Ghost. That's the unpardonable sin. Here there seems to be a sin that they knew that was unto death. He continues in verse 16. There is a sin unto death I do not say that he, that is the brother that witnessed the committing of sin, should pray for it. So what do you do? There seems to be in this specific passage two thoughts that we could draw out. One of them is that this individual is so-called a brother. And for that, he's unregenerate. For this cause, we're not to pray for their death because their death would be their what? their doom and destruction. So this person's committing a sin, there's no repentance in their heart. Don't pray that God would kill them. Why? It would end in eternal doom and death for them. They're unregenerate. If this individual's a believer, 
singularly minded. I do not say that you should pray for the sin unto death. Why? For they're carnal minded. And in such case, not knowing exactly what that sin is, we're praying that there would never be restoration and uh, restoration of fellowship in their life. You're praying for them to happen what happened to Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. That literally they'd be carried out. You're praying what would happen in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 30 at the Lord's table for this cause many are, are many to sleep among you. He says, Don't, well, what's our response? You know, when you get to the point of what we refer to as church discipline, discipline's an interesting word, and, and, and there are so many in our English word, I think, for instance, of the word pastor, P-A-S-T-O-R. And pastor and pasture, P-A-S-T-U-R-E, come from the same root in the, in the English world, uh, word, and it should be. The idea of a pastor is one that point main, he feeds. That's the analogy that's given with him being a shepherd. His responsibility is to, uh, Acts chapter 20, feed the flock of God. There's a correlation between a pasture and a pastor. That's why when I type in a word program and I type the fact that I'm pastoring, it changes it to pasturing. That's what it always changes it to. But it's actually going back to the same root. That's what a pastor is. The aspect of him being the overseer is the word bishop. There's two different words. It's the same office, but it's, it's a different uh, uh, distinction there. Well, similarly is discipline and disciple. The whole purpose that there is discipline is so that there is discipleship. You don't discipline your kids because you hate them. Why does one discipline their kids? So that they are walking a right path in life. Here's the thing. The scripture tells us in Proverbs that a child left to himself, what does he do? Causes his father and mother shame. Proverbs goes on. He talks about uh, this wayward son bring grief to his mother. Why? He was left alone. He wasn't ever corrected. He wasn't instructed. And the guaranteed thing in life, if there's no parent involved, I suppose the school systems could do a better job. That's my attempt at blatant sarcasm. But... Uh, um, if there's no parent to course correct, then the guarantee is you'll have a child that will go their own way, and ultimately that way will bring about destruction. That is God's accountability program. When you come to dis discipline and discipleship, it's the same reason. The reason why there should be discipline in a life of a believer as, as from the Father in heaven is to keep you and I to walk in the path that God has. It's not about malice. It's not about anger. It's not about uh, wickedness in the sense of, uh, of us being better than everybody else, but rather the whole purpose is that of discipleship. It seems that it is completely possible for a child of God to commit an egregious sin that is antithetical to the fruit that should be born in the life of a believer. Sometimes it's the case that one believer might actually wonder if another believer by the course of their life is actually or were they actually ever redeemed. Hold your finger or marker perhaps in 1 John and turn over to 1 Corinthians. This is a particular passage here. Paul's written to the church and they've got all manner of difficulty and he's going to begin to methodically 
distinction, give distinction upon these. Uh, in in um, the opening chapters, he's going to talk about division. In chapter 5, he's going to talk about uh, fornication that is present, and we'll look in just a couple of passages there. In chapter 6, he's going to talk about uh, going to court. In chapter 7, he's going to talk about marriage, and so forth, and so And In chapter 8, idols and the eating of meat, and he's, he's laying out methodically and logically some of the, the questions uh, that the Corinthian church had and some of the problems that they have. In keeping in chapter 5 and verse 3, he's going to talk about himself judging things, though he was absent in body, but present in spirit. What he's saying there in verse number 3 of chapter 5, he said, I'm not there. I'm not in Corinth. But what I'm hearing, I've already judged it. Why? Because I've judged it by the very word of God. And by the way, he reminds him in chapter 4 and verse number 4, he says, and the fact is, we all are going to be judged. And this is how God is going to judge by his very word and hearing what's happening and receiving that witness by two or more. He said, I've already judged, though I'm absent in body. That leads me to the thought that sometimes things are way more complicated than they really need to be. That is, if we're going to go back and base our certainties on the word of God. Now, I want you to note here, because what I had said earlier is that sometimes it is possible for a child of God to commit egregious sins that are antithetical to the fruit that they should be bearing. They're opposites. Look, if you will, in verse number 11. I want you to notice something of a dependent clause that is present. He says, now I have written unto you not to keep company. If. Clause. If. Someone said the biggest two-letter word in all the dictionary if any man that is what? Called a brother. Wait, wait a minute. I thought he was. What's being revealed to us here in this passage is it is possible that someone can name the name of Christ and through departure from a submission to the Holy Spirit of God in their life commit a sin that is antithetical to the fruit that they should be bearing. What he's saying here is just people in the church, well, look back, if you will, in verse number one. Here is an apropos uh, example. It is reported commonly. You know what that means? It's all over Facebook. All over, I don't need to ask any. I mean, man, there's so many witnesses that in any court of law, this thing is clearly known. It's commonly known, commonly, that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles. What does that mean? This thing is so far out in left field. And when you speak of Gentiles in the New Testament, it can sometimes mean the unbelievers or it can mean an ethnic grouping. Because of the fact that they are an ethnic grouping. They are Gentiles themselves. They are Corinthians. And by the way, Corinthians was sometimes used as a verb that you could Corinthicize someone. It meant to immerse them in the utter abominable wickedness. That's what a Corinthian was. It was one that engaged in such licentious evil that all of the region beyond that area looked at this and said, man, that dude must be from Corinth. Now, this church is located in Corinth, and he said, what is commonly reported is there's such a level of evilness and wickedness within the assembly that Corinth that was out, which is wicked beyond comparison, what does he say there? Doesn't go that far. As is not so much named among the Gentiles. It is possible. And you can have an individual 
engage in a level of sin that some members, or might I add a second point, some members of the world would not exceed or would not take it that far. This is what I'm saying. This is why he comes down. He says, he, if he's called a brother, I realize he said he made a profession of faith. I, I realize that this gentleman here in verse number one is a, a member, but the fact is um, he surely ain't acting like a Christian. This is what's mentioned if he says, if any man that is called a brother. Well, what sin is there in the scriptures that has such a strong admonition against that would require me as a believer having a biblical response to? John tells us there's different kinds. There's a sin unto death, and then there's a sin that is not unto death. Let me give you some passages. It's well worth every Christian having these. I'm not going to have you turn to, well, let's, let's just take a minute and turn to these. We're going to move, and I'm going to start in Matthew, and I'm going to work through, but I'm just going to be quick. Uh, look at Matthew chapter 18. I'll give you the first of these. Matthew chapter 18, sometimes, and there's for right reasons, but we address this as being the whole of all that is usually known about a type of response to a brother that is sinning. And this is usually the passage that is cited. But in actuality, by context, it's actually gross mistreatment, meaning there's no specificity to it. Begin reading in chapter 15. He said, moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee. And I would note he didn't, there's no immorality mentioned there. He's trespassed against thee. Uh, that word trespass, scandalon, it's, it's, he sinned against you. That's why it's a personal gross mistreatment. Maybe he's lied about you. Maybe he has stolen from you. Maybe he's wronged you. Maybe he's hurt you with his words. There can be a host of these, but there's no immorality mentioned here in the text. It seems to be a level of gross mistreatment. And nevertheless, the principle, go tell him his fault between thee and thee alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained a brother. And he continues down there, you know, and if he won't hear you, then you take another um, uh, partner uh, that is there, and you take him in the mouth of two or three a witness. Every word shall be established. Verse 17, then you, you bring it to the church, and this seems to be the context by which most know. But in reference, he's speaking of gross personal mistreatment by actual context. Look in Romans chapter number 16. Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16 opens up with commending dear Phoebe and really an outlier of all these gracious individuals that had assisted the church at Rome or directly the apostle in their labors, even the dear beloved um, um, uh, Aquila and Priscilla that had laid down their life for the apostle Paul. But draw your, draw your note down to verse 16. He says, salute one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you. Now I beseech you beseech, I implore, I beg you, brethren, sharing the common womb, mark, the Greek word, skopos. Do like a couple guys be doing here in November, skopos. Mark them which calls divisions and offenses. The word divisions there is seditions, dissensions, arguments. Offenses, it's the same word as trespass back in Matthew chapter 18, it's scandalon. Producing an occasion to fall a snare, a, a trap stick, like you might find in a level of hunt and game. But the idea is 
They're creating divisions and ascensions contrary to the doctrine which you have learned. And he's going to use a word here, avoid them. I would note what seems obvious in this particular passage is there's no first and second admonition given. The idea is so replete are these divisions and offenses. And so contrary they are to the word of God, mark them and get away. This seems to do primarily with divisions and offenses. Let me take you to another one. We were there just a moment ago, 1 Corinthians, the very next book, chapter 5. These are some specific sins. So in Matthew 18, you seem to have personal, grievous, gross misconduct. In Romans chapter 16, he addresses them in the sense of divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrines. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 19, this is gross, specific sins. Not general, specific. He mentions in chapter number 11, I'm sorry, in chapter number 5 and verse 11, he had mentions it earlier as well. He said, but now I've written unto you, not to keep company if a man that is called a brother be a fornicator. And note the action present word there, be. He is right now. He is a fornicator. Porneos is the Greek word there. It's the idea of a, a, a general sexual sin. Covetous. Well, covetous is as the sin of idolatry. This is a man that's full of his wants and desires that would lead him to all manner of evil. Idolater. An idea of one that promotes something above the lordship and the preeminency of Jesus Christ. Here's an interesting one, a railer. It doesn't mean one that lays track. A railer is one that shoots his mouth off in such a way that somebody wants to pop him in the nose. That's what it is. His speech is so seditious that it really drives home to a point that he stirs up wrath with his speech. A drunkard an extortioner. And note the commonality with such a one, no, not to eat. References them, I think, earlier in the chapter as well. These are specific sins. Look in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I apologize, chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Here's a broad sense of a disorderly walk. So what we've touched on is personal conflict, Matthew chapter 18. Divisions and offenses within the assembly, contrary to the doctrine, Romans chapter 16. Specific sins, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now we're disorderly walk, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Now we command you, brethren, verse 6, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he has received of us. Now if we just stop there we would be something open to decide what it means to walk disorderly. But there's specificity in the text. For, verse 7, yourselves know how ye ought to follow us, for we behaved not ourselves disorderly among you. Give me an emphasis, Paul. Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day, that ye might not be chargeable to any of you. Not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you those three weeks, we commanded you that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly. Here's a couple of things. How are you disorderly? Number one, you're not laboring with your hands the thing which is good. You're not working. You're slothful. Secondly, and probably because of the first one, 
you are now busybodies. And you got your nose in everybody's business because you have no business. Then he continues, he said, Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. But ye brethren, be not weary in well-doing. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. A disorderly walk. What he's doing with his time and what he's not doing with his time. And then you come to Titus. We'll look here in chapter 3 quickly. Titus chapter 3, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus chapter 3. Note, if you will, let's move it to verse number 9. The brother referenced this in his prayer earlier this evening. But avoid foolish questions and genealogies. And to the Jews, they had all manner of foolish questions. To the Jews, genealogy meant something. And Titus, being forewarned and somewhat being trained and being educated by the Apostle Paul, he says, avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law for the unprofitable in vain. A man that is a heretic. That's quite interesting. You could look at that as subjective in one sense. It seems to me during the great Spanish Inquisition of the 1500s, that was the tag. They wanted to burn all the heretics which wasn't Bible. The Lord never commanded the burning of heretics. But that is the word they would use, heretic, heretic. And we get the idea that a heretic really is someone that embraces false doctrine. But it's not exclusively true, actually. In fact, the word heretic really means schism. And it reverts back to verse number nine, foolish questions. Can I, can I give you something? Did you know there are questions that you're never going to get the answers to? And then there's going to be questions that you don't want the answer to. That's what he's speaking of here. And these heretics would go around creating a schism, a division, if you will, over what? Over things that don't matter a lick, according to sound doctrine. And so there are some of these with foolish questions. There were some of these with genealogies. You've got to have all the tribes of Benjamin over here and got to have this little group of the tribe of Judah and this little group of the, uh, the uh, uh, Ephraimites and this little group of the Levites and foolish. It's the same thing. That's what he's talking about heretics. You got your little schisms everywhere. And I, I would continue there. He talks about contentions and strivings about the law. For they are unprofitable and veins a powerful word in the New Testament means empty and corrupt. And he says that this man, this heretic, this individual, after the first and second admonition, what do you do? Reject. Be done with it. So how should a believer respond when someone that is called a believer committeth sin? What do you do? Now, we're not talking tonight about what a church as a whole should do. Because if we were going to do that, I would be focusing on this passage and the Matthew passage. Because there does seem to be a lot with the threes. Go to him, take someone else, take him. That would be where we live, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about our, mine, your personal response to a present participle sinning brother. What is my individual role? 
You see, sometimes it's easy to look in this situation and say, well, it's the church's responsibility, and I individually don't have a responsibility. Or you get individuals completely confused about their responsibility and say, well, they're going through a rough time, and I just need to love and encourage them. So our theme tonight is seeing all of this importance, seeing the authoritativeness of the Word of God, seeing the fact that all sin is unrighteousness, and there are different kinds of sins that are called for different type of things. What should I as an individual, how should I biblically respond to a brother or sister in the Lord that is currently right now committing sin as unrepentant tortured? And I think that there are a number of things, and I want to give them to you. Number one, we have to recognize the state of persistent sin. All unrighteousness is sin. Listen, folks, if someone is sinning, they're transgressing the law of God. The individual that is sinning is out of fellowship with God. We often use human vernaculars when we deal with sin, and we say, well, it's not that big a deal or everybody's doing it. But if God has forbidden his children not to do it, then I would remind you of Romans chapter 6. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Do you realize that passage, God forbid, it was the strongest possible way to say no? It isn't just a cursory, no, that wouldn't be a good idea. I mean, it, it's a pleading divine abhorrence. God forbid, sin as a whole created great damage. Look at the life of, Abra, uh, of Adam. Through that one man's sin, sin into the world, and what happened? Consequence. Death passed upon all men. Can I tell you this? The fact is, sin has a consequence, not singularly for the person that commits it, but for those that are in their sphere of influence. And you and I as believers, the first portion to this biblical response is we have to recognize the state and quality of what persistent sin does in the life of an individual. They have violated God's holy law. They have defiled themselves, and note this, they've defiled all of them, all of them that would rub elbows with them. It's blatant rebellion. It's ingratitude. And reference, except it be for their submission and confessing and forsaking of that, it will wind up in an incurable result in their life. My God does not allow us to thumb our noses at him and assume that nothing is going to happen because, after all, we're saved. John said, brethren, there is a sin and a death. And before we can get to the point of what we need to do, that is the recognition that we must have a recognition of what it means to have persistent sin. It is really an end of influence for godliness among others. It is a conclusion of, of fellowship, not relationship, but fellowship. It is a loss of divine power. Number two, we must respond with truth. Look, if you will, at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We looked at this earlier, but I just want to point a word. It was so often in so many of these, but I'll just point this one. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 15, you count him not as an enemy, but what do you do? Admonish him. The Greek word to admonish is this, nuthetic. It's from which we get the word nuthetic. It simply means tell him the fault. You know, sometimes when a child of God has strayed from the presence of God, the first thing we want to do is have pity on them. Look how bad their life is. Look how awful. Everybody's upset with them. And we get the idea the first thing we need to do is run in there and go love them. 
But that's not what God said. What did he say? Admonish them. Now, granted, it would do no good to admonish them in malice. But there must be the singular truth. There must be the conveyance of God is displeased with you. There must be the fact that we have told them their fault. There must be that fact that we have reproved them. We respond with truth. Number three, and we won't turn here for time's sake, but number three, we refrain or resist, rather, from the temptation to pray imprecatory prayers. Now, I don't, I don't mean to make light of a situation, but, you know, sometimes when a child of God strays from the presence of God and begins to live godless in life, our first tendency can be anger. Oh, do they, they, do they not realize the impact that had on everybody else? I tell you what we ought to do. I'll take them up there and string them up by their toes. That'd teach them something. That's our first initial response. You know why? Because it's reflected upon us. And sometimes we parents get involved in that too. You ever had, a, you ever had your child misbehave and embarrass you? What's your first response? When I get you home, I have to kill you. (laughs) But the wrath of man, what does it not do? James said it clearly. The wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Got to resist the temptation to simply pray, well, God, I wish you'd just kill him. And I gave that at the onset. In one sense, sense, if, if, if they're just called a brother and they're not really saved, what does praying imprecatorily against them do? You're asking God to kill them, send them to a godless hell. Number two, if they're a believer, you're saying, I pray they never have an opportunity for restoration and fellowship again. So resist it. That's why John says, I do not think you should pray for it. Number four, and I won't recover these, I won't go through all of these, but I tried to emphasize them as we read there seems to be an undermining, clear example, and that is refrain from fellowship. He says, withdraw thyself. Avoid. In 1 Thessalonians, or rather 1 Corinthians, um, in chapter number 5, he says, don't even break bread with them. I realize that's hard. What if it was your close personal friend? Why is it so important to have that engaged? Well, I think the Bible lays out a number of things. Number one, your heart. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says this, evil communications corrupt good manners. I mean, we've all heard it in a real sense. If you lay down with dogs, you'll get up with. I mean, we see this on so many different levels, but part of it is your heart. I'll give you a statement that I have found to be true by experience. Friends influence your heart. They really do. So go out and get wrong friends. And what happens? They're not going to tempt you to become a better Christian. I mentioned Thursday night I was listening to an autobiography of George Mueller, the great German uh, missionary, really, but he was to Bristol, England. George Mueller went to divinity school for Lutheran divinity school, and he was known as a guy that had fun. He'd get drunk, he'd gamble, he'd carouse, he'd do it. He was lost. He wasn't saved. But he's in divinity school. I'll let you know about the Lutherans there. That was 300 years ago. 
but he had a friend that was in, not really a friend, that was a colleague of his that was also in school, and he admired George Mueller. But this guy had a, a, a reputation for being a goody two-shoes. And so one day he met George Mueller, and he said, George, you know who I am? And George said, yeah, I know who you are. And he said, George, can we be friends? You just know how to have a good time, and that's what I want to be. That guy never influenced George Mueller for good at all. But I want you to know George Mueller opened up every avenue of evil unto him. Friendships tend to be that way. You get bad friends, they're not going to tempt you to do good things. Proverbs chapter 1, my son, hear my instruction. When sinners entice thee, by the way, it's what sinners do. They sin. It's why we're told not to have any friendship with the world. It's not to mean in a greater sense uh, that I can't be nice to someone. It's not the greater sense that I can't speak pleasantries. But if I let their way of thinking get close to me, I'll start thinking their way. I'll start acting their way. I'll start socializing their way. My friend, this happens all across with the theology of the seeker-sensitive movement. Let's make everybody comfortable in a church, and it won't be long before there's more than two genders And we're not sure what up is. Friends influence hearts. So the refraining of fellowship has as much to do with you as anyone else. We do so for purity's sake. 1 John chapter 3, He that have this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. I don't separate from people because I don't like them. The, the, The biblical foundation for separation is that I might be more like the master. And such is the case here. Your te- testimony, your reputation, your will, your heart, your mind are like all at stake. And to what extent should we refrain fellowship? Mark and avoid them. Don't eat with them. Withdraw thyself. Make a stand for the things of God, or it will not be long, and you'll be treading down the same path and choices they do. And then the fifth one, which I always like to think of, See a brother commit a sin? You're praying for him. That seems to go without saying. But when that brother has repented, and when that brother has turned his face to his Savior and forsaken those sins, we have a biblical responsibility to seek the restoration of fellowship. I would know in regards to restoration of fellowship, sometimes we get the idea in this that it's something that happens, you know, consecutively. Might I I say this, that when someone, a believer, commits a sin against God and continues in that, that didn't happen overnight. It was days and weeks, the action might have, but all that led up to it was premeditated. It took time. There were changes in their hearts and minds and their attitude and their fellowship with God that brought about this. That's what you see in James. He says, for when our lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. It didn't just sin didn't happen first. The desire for sin happened. So as a result, when you and I are seeing someone in this lifestyle that they have chosen something diametrically opposite of the Word of God, note this, that didn't happen overnight, and repentance might not happen overnight either. In fact, sometimes it makes me nervous a little bit when things just go click, click. Makes me wonder if things were a facade instead of really being genuine. 
And I would note that restoration is one that maybe doesn't happen extremely overnight. You know, when a person that you're close to commits a sin, our natural proclivity is, well, let's embrace them. Boy, let's just, but the fact is it's not dealt with. And if that takes time, restoration also does. One of the points I often like to make as we're studying this is if you had someone that you saw stole from your wallet hundreds of dollars and they apologized and you sought restoration, how long was it, would it be before you would put your full wallet out at their opportunity? Would you do that the very next minute? Somebody took $500 from your wallet, they apologized to it, Hug next, would you be quick to lay your wallet out on the counter right in front of them? No. Part of it is trust has been violated. And trust is a, a unique thing. Trust takes a lifetime to build and a second to destroy. But we have a command to seek to restore fellowship. But that command only comes after the sin matter has been concluded. There are distinct biblical responsibilities on how to deal with the sinning brother. Philippians chapter 2 says that we are to shine as lights in a world that is crooked and perverse. Yet we can only seek purity through truth. And the goal and the attitude of every believer should be found in Philippians chapter 3 that we press on to the mark of the prize of the calling found in Christ Jesus. Our goal is not one of malice toward the ungodly, but it isn't also a willful ignorance and absence towards our Savior. Therefore, when a brother is sinning a sin, we must follow the biblically set examples that our precious holy God has commanded. And I would remind you of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it was only after they had followed the biblically outlined commands of God on how to deal with the fellow in Romans, in 1 Corinthians rather chapter 5, do you get the wondrous truth of 2 Corinthians chapter 2? Receive him. That's really the mark of any relationship we have. We want restoration. We want fellowship. But that only comes in the highway of the righteous. Let's stand where feet, Father. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. 17112 and visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.